Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. My guest this week is Dominic Taylor Lane. He is he spent his whole life involved with cars, mainly British cars. He's got a beautiful Alvis. Um, he's got a fantastic little Triumph Herald convertible. He's had all kinds of cars. He is head honshaw at the Association of Heritage Engineers. My guest this week, Dominic Taylor Lane. So, Dom, TG, TG John and Company Limited, it doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, does it? Absolutely not. So it was probably a better idea that they decided to call the company Alvis. Indeed. I don't know why he did, but I'm glad he did. Well, there are two theories, aren't there? There's, there's one that says um, it's a combination of aluminium and Viz, which, of course, as a, an educated man and an informed individual, you'll know is Latin for strength. So it's strength, strong aluminium. And another one um, says that it's uh, a Norse god. It's the name of a Norse god. But the fellow that started the company said, no, no, I just completely made it up, didn't he? (laughs) Did you know that? I didn't know that, but it sounds sounds perfectly feasible, like a lot of great names of cars. That car that you've got... um, because, of course, when I um, when somebody sends me, like, a friend request or something like that on Facebook, I always do a bit of stalking just to find out whether they <laughs> Oh, and it, I'm a really simple... I'm a really simple Facebook friend. If you are an attractive woman, forget it, because the missus knows how to use Facebook a, <laughs> a lot better than I do, and she'll go, what are you doing, friending Desiree, or, or whatever this person is? Um, and if you are, if there's lots of pictures of your kids and dogs, I'm I'm really glad that you love your children and your dogs. I'm really glad, but you can't be friends with me on Facebook. If your two pictures, your little profile picture and your bigger picture behind it, are motorbikes and cars that I like, straight away, instant friend. <laughs> and you've got two fantastic cars. I'm sure you've got like loads of friends and family and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we're British, aren't we? We that sort of thing's reasonably private, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I do love them. I love them to bits, but the cars are better looking. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to go down well when you're not listening to it. So, (laughs) Alvis started in the 1920s, and I think basically it was an example of, an early example of automotive industry chicanery and and double dealing, because they basically nicked their engineering department from Daimler, didn't they? They did indeed. They did indeed. Who would just down the just down the road from them in Coventry? Well, there was a lot going on in Coventry, and I'm guessing, um, you know, there was a time when there weren't a great deal of people doing it. So the only way to get into it, or the quickest way to get into it, was to, you know, pay them a couple of shillings more and pull them up the road. Was the initial idea with Alvis to make um, sporting touring cars for gentlemen? There was a lot of that about it between the wars, wasn't there? 
I think after the First World War, everybody thought the good times were back and, and everybody threw caution to the wind, uh, not knowing what the 30s would bring along. But there was a huge amount of money being spent coming out after the end of the Second World War by the people who had it. Um, and lots of companies sprung up to take the money off them. So when do you decide? I, I didn't realise. See, I got um, a box full of photographs and receipts and handwritten receipts and stuff like that and notebooks with kind of dates and stuff like that scribbled in. And it's it's my grandfather's, it's my mother's father's motoring box. And there's pictures of Rileys and Rudge motorcycles and all that sort of stuff. And in there, we found an Alvis keyring, the distinctive Alvis triangular logo. And my mother said, he must have had an Alvis. And I said, well, Mum, it's only a keyring. And she said, your grandfather would never, was the sort of man who would never have kept that unless he'd owned the car. And when I think back to him, he was, he just, he just wouldn't. He was, a, he was born in 1900, the last of the Victorians, my grandfather. And he learnt to fly at Britain's second airport. Do you know what that would be, Dom? Britain's, Croydon was Britain's first airport. What do you think was the second? Think about where I am. Uh, well, it's not Berry. Is it Manchester? It's Blackpool. Squires Gate Blackpool was, was Britain's second airport, and he learnt to fly. That was a bit of a trick question, wasn't it, really? <laughs> I'm sorry about that, sorry about that Dob. But um, he, he was the sort, when I think back, he was the sort of chap that would have an Elvis because he was a pioneer aviator. Um, he did a bit of acting. He played for Berry Football Club. R.I.P. Very Berry Football Club, <laughs> whose demise sort of encapsulates everything that's wrong with modern football for me. Um, he had three fights as a boxer, three pro fights as a boxer. He was a sporting gentleman. And an Alvis or a, a Riley was a Riley man as well. They were the sort of cars that a fellow like that would have, weren't they? Absolutely. Quietly understated. Do you think so? Yeah, I do. What about this thing, Dom, of... British car companies just making the engine and the chassis and letting other people make the body. Did that come from the days of horse-drawn carriages? Was that an idea that was just carried over? As far as I am aware, that is exactly how it happened. They just went from... If you look at the really early stuff they did, it was quite literally a carriage on top of a chassis where even, even the passengers didn't keep dry. So, you've got... In, around Coventry, you would have had people like uh, Gurney Nutting, Hooper, uh, Tickford. There was an, a whole host of, of carriage um, bodywork people. But after the war, Alvis ended up in a bit... After the Second World War, Alvis ended up in a bit of a spot, didn't they? Because Tickford were bought by David Brown, and I think, was it Hooper allied themselves to Standard Triumph? He, after the war... Um, the car makers decided that they should have exclusive use of, of carriage makers, and obviously cars started to be monocoque, and so you didn't really need somebody to stick a body on your chassis, did you? No, 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 absolutely not. And the the Alvis I've got was... was Which well, one's yours? Is it a TD21? Mine's a TD21, so mine's a part ward-bodied car, so the bodies were made in the same factory. Part ward was owned by Rolls-Royce. Um, mm. And they were made alongside Rolls Royce bodies. Is that why Alvis ended up 
having their stuff made in Switzerland? Because Grabber, is it Grabber or Grabber? Go on, Dom, have a try. Take a run at it. I'm going to go Graber. Graber, yeah, I think so. Is that why why they ended up um, going to uh, continental Europe for their design and their bodies? Because the other car companies, bigger car companies, snapped up the. Uh, As I understand it, Elvis Elvis went to Graber and and asked them to build um, a body. So they were effectively, and I can be corrected here, but they were effectively concept cars and. The cars, the cars that they were building, because they were built in Switzerland and they were built to a very high standard, um, they were extraordinarily expensive. I'm trying to think of the Swiss car industry, and I can only think of Monteverdi. The Monteverdi company. No. <laughs> but they, they then bought it back. They then bought the building back to the UK to a company called Willowbrook who basically copied the Graber designs. Um, and I don't think Alvis wanted to um, pay the design stuff to, um, to Graber, so they, they, they Alvised it. Um, <laughs> and they made the more, the more simple version, which are the TDs, which are the, the actual Swiss-built ones are exquisite things with painted dashboards and all very contemporary, but but incredibly expensive. Um, so they bought it back and... How expensive? In-house. How um, expensive, Dom? Would it, would it have been, um, in terms of... I always go off profession. Would it have been beyond a bank manager? Would it have been way beyond that sort of oh, individual? Oh, yes, I would have thought so. So you would have been after the, the Duke of Buckley or, or Cary Grant or someone like that to have afforded one? Absolutely. You'd have been looking at custom Bentley money. Wow. <laughs> and, of course, you'd have to pay it all up front. People don't realise, do they, that higher purchase was technically illegal in the UK for a long time. And so there was none of this, well, put your money down and then so much a month. It was like, no, 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 that's illegal. You've got to pay this amount. Oh, by the way, there's 40% or 45% sales tax on top of it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You were definitely telling people you had a few quid. The only person apart from you and my, possibly my grandfather I can think of that of uh, all this owners is Stephen Fry. A pal of mine sold him one. I don't know if he's still got it. And and the the motorbike that he, he also sold to Stephen Fry was a Sunbeam S8. And I think he was making a statement because, <laughs> for me, both of those machines could only ever have been made in Britain. They, they have, as you say, a sort of an understated elegance about them. They're probably heavier than they should be. They're way, way better made than they should be. And, and, and the reason I say that is because both companies would inevitably go bankrupt because, you know, <laughs> there's no money in making things really, really well, is there? Absolutely not. But I'm glad they did. <laughs> well, there are, there, are, there are three famous Elvis owners that, that, that Elvis owners point out. And to... To uh, agree with your point completely, the people are uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, Nicholas Parsons, and Douglas Bader. Douglas Bader. <laughs> Just watched a doc- documentary about Douglas Bader. Wasn't entirely complimentary. No, no. I think he was. I think he was challenging. I think he was one of those men like uh, Churchill, who I believe to be the greatest Briton. Um, 
who was really, really useful in wartime, but a bit of a liability in peacetime? Well, he was, uh, he was an executive for an oil company, I think. The, that's what he did before the war, and I think that's what he went back to. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a time where if you were an executive for an oil company, if you couldn't make money coming out of the war, then you were never going to, were you? Well, no. <coughs> what, um, what age do you get to, Dom, when you start to think to yourself, you look at open-top Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things with gullwing doors and scissor doors and that make loud noises that people rev up when they go through a tunnel and you think and you snort you snort at those people you go <laughs> and you start to think you know what I want I want an Alvis how old are you when that happens because it, it, a 25 year old in an Alvis would look utterly ridiculous he would indeed I think I think uh, you know if you're if you're still with your first wife probably 40 <laughs> it's like smoking a pipe, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I took to a pipe at forty, and people were quite surprised. People would uh, they'd remark on it, you know, to, to the point that it got annoying. <laughs> Although I did, I did meet a good friend of mine because uh, Max Wakefield, who's a sort of racing driver, carman, motorcycle guy, um, his dad, Sir Humphrey, has Chillingham Castle which is on the sort of border of England and Scotland, and I've known him for years now. And the reason I met him is because at an event, he said he said to me, you know why I came up to talk to you? He said, I saw you uh, at that event, and I thought, who's that guy smoking a pink pipe? I'll go and talk to him. <laughs> it's not pink, it's sort of a reddy colour. But, um, but people, you know, I think 40, you can start smoking a pipe, so 40... You could start driving a Bristol or an Alvis. Would, would you equate Bristol and Alvis as, as kind of not necessarily the same car, but the same philosophy? Absolutely. Well, the guy I bought my Alvis off had two Bristols. Oh, I like a pair of Bristols, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> and he was actually restoring a pre-war Alvis as well. All right, uh, there you go. So, uh, yeah, but he... Interestingly, his his collection was he, he had two Alvises, uh, the pair of Bristols, um, and he also had uh, an XJS V12 and an Aston Martin DB7. Blimey, a man of taste, refinement, and plenty of cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, where did you find yours, Dom? What was it like? Because yours is beautiful. I mean, it's in. It's probably better than when I was going to say it came out of the factory, but of course, uh, gentlemen's motor cars don't come out of factories. They come Absolutely out. Absolutely not. They no, come no, out. No. They come out of workshops, and then they go to. Uh, and then they go to Arnold of Manchester. I probably would have gone to, wouldn't I? Absolutely. Well, I've been through a few motor cars in my career. I will admit that. Um, and I had a. I had a Sunbeam Tiger. Oh. You, hold on, you're not going to tell us you sold a tiger to buy that Alvis. My Sunbeam Tiger went to a collector in New Zealand because it was the stupid time in the market. Um, and and it, it, it paid me three times what I'd bought for it in two years. And although it went fantastically in a straight line and was probably the best thing on earth to turn petrol to noise... Uh, Dynamically, it was a little bit scary. Great in a straight line. Corners, not so good. Well, um, the greatest thing to turn petrol to noise is 
the Mike Hailwood Honda 6 racing motorcycle, but um, I will admit that a Sunbeam Tiger is a fabulous thing. It's kind of... Were friends shocked and stunned when you admitted that you were moving it on? No, because most of them had either had their shoes stuck to the floor of it or um, had had sweated about three pounds off whenever we went out. <laughs> so are you undermining the myth of the, of the Sunbeam Tiger? I was, watching, um, I was watching something on YouTube yesterday and the bloke who runs Haggerty, the insurer, I'm with Haggerty here in the UK and I can heartily recommend them. wish they'd have an advert on the show. <laughs> um, the, the bloke who runs it in the States said the Sunbeam Tiger was his all-time favourite car. I thought, wow, that guy's got some cars as well. And I thought, wow, all-time favourite, the Sunbeam Tiger. And, and you uh, you sent one off to New Zealand. Dom, do you think that, that the classic car market is always inevitably going to go in cycles of booms, boom and bust? Yes, I do. I think it's... Because how many have we seen now? I'm, I'm probably three times we've seen it since yeah. we started being involved. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I think it depends. I think it depends very much on the stock market. If people, if people are making money from other investments, then generally they stick the money in that. I think people. I think the problem with the stuff that we've seen is that investors pick up on this stuff and drive the prices way out of reach of anybody else. Um, and then I think the people who, who who can't afford the cars get a bit, well, for want of a better word, disillusioned. I remember thinking it all got really silly when I went to a facility and I'd known this guy for a couple of years before he decided one day at lunch to take me there. He'd never even mentioned it, really, and I'd never asked about it. And we went there and he said, and there was, I'm not going to say where it is, which country it was in, there were some amazing cars in there, millions and millions of pounds of motor cars. And he said, do you know what, Steve? Some of these cars have changed hands two and three times and never left this building. How about that? Well, that's, that's, there was, there was a, um, an Athena poster car down at the London Motor Show, the Gembala Avalanche, <laughs> which was... Which is a, a, a Porsche 911 that has a face only a mother could love in pearlescent white. Um, Germans that... shouldn't be allowed to style things. You let Germans build things, <laughs> but Italians... The Carmen Gear, perfect example. Gear, styling, Carmen, building. Perfect example, beautiful car. Don't let the Germans design things. Now, well, this car, I think, came out in 80... 80 mid-80s, so mid-Miami Vice. Ooh. Um, and I think it's done 18,000 miles from new, and it, it's had lots and lots of owners who all thought they were going to make lots of money on it. Um, and and the 911s have really caught a cold in the last two years because they flew too close to the sun. And there's all these cars that really should be out there and, and you know, given a damn good hiding. Um there's a fantastic guy who turned up to one of the Bista things a little while back. There was a, a guy turned up in his Porsche RSR replica and he parked it and he, you know, kind of walked around it and he leaned against it and he let people take pictures of him standing up against it. And then a chap and his son turned up in a red Porsche 
959, got out, went, I'm going to get a cup of coffee, chucked the keys at the Porsche bloke and said, if you need to move it, there you go. <laughs> and you just thought, that's where you want to be. <laughs> at the old Bentley thing, uh, uh, things, there are a lot of uh, very valuable cars that... Uh, I, think, I think the old Bentley crowd, and when I say old Bentley, I mean W.R. Bentley, era Bentley. Yeah. Um, they are the most committed group in terms of driving their very, very, very valuable cars. I've been out with them on numerous occasions. They're a good set of lads. They are mainly lads. In fact, I'm thinking exclusively lads. Um, and they drive these things all the time. We went to the big thing at Silverstone last year, and we went down in convoy uh, from the northwest, five cars, and passed everything on the motorway. <laughs> Yeah, well, in 100-year-old in cars, cars that are nearly 100 years old, passing everything. Wearing, and I love riding in those cars because it's a fantastic excuse to wear, like, a flying home. I've got, you'd be surprised to know, Dom, I'm sure, that I probably own about 10 different flying helmets of different, leather flying helmets of different vintage and the associated goggles. And I've got an actual Battle of Britain... Um, uh, Flying helmet, leather flying helmet, with the drop down sunglasses. You know the sort of the blinds. I know it, the ones. Yeah, yeah, the ones from the movie, the with my the Battle of Britain, where it's like bandits at three o'clock, ginger, and he he just <laughs> flicks down the sunblinds. And I've got those. So if you're riding in a WA or a Bentley, when are you going to get a better excuse other than actually flying a Spitfire, which probably isn't going to happen to me? <laughs> um, well, so 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 actually. You were a steampunk before they actually even happened. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> but you, you, like I say, you, you're in you're in one of those cars, and, and the same the same with the Alvis. And speed is, of course, relative. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think when I realised that speed was relative. I think it was on the London to Brighton run, and I was with Doug Hill, who I'm sure you know yeah. from the National Motor Museum, and we were in an 1897 Leon Bollet tricar going down Pikeham Hill, and Doug shouted to me, if this thing goes out of control and I shout jump, you jump. And he, he grabbed my arm and looked at me and I thought, I'm definitely going to jump, Doug. <laughs> because we can't have been doing it. We, we got up to about 40 miles an hour and it felt like death was imminent. <laughs> I mean, you know, and you think 40, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't have gone back to Manchester and sat in the pub and went, hey, I went at 40 miles an hour at the weekend. You know, people were like... But if people, most people had actually experienced what it would be like to be in a 19th-century car with only three wheels, only one of which had any kind of brake on it... Absolutely. All of, all of a sudden... wooden block. Yeah, all of a sudden, 40 mile an hour is really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more. But doing 100 miles an hour in Alvis, which it's capable of, Actually, it's vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, my old house that I used to live in in Bury, I bought it from Paul Abbott. You know the chap that uh, created Shameless, the TV show? Yes. Bought it from him. It was a house that, as a kid, I'd gone past many times on my way to Bury Football Club, going to get mentioned again, the <laughs> RIP, on my way there. This big house set back with columns on either side of the door, and I thought, I'm going to buy that house one day. And I did, off Paul Abbott. And um, I've completely lost the thread of what, what we were talking about there. <laughs> what were we talking Oh, about being vulgar. Yeah. So um, I've, been, I've been living in it. It's a big old sort of rambling Victorian house, and um, 
I'd been there a couple of days and there was a knock on the door. I went to the door and there was an elderly man, heavy-set elderly man, uh, very tanned, wearing a Hawaiian shirt with, I'm pretty sure, a hairpiece in the style of Elvis Presley. Now, this wasn't the sort of thing that you saw a lot in Berry Lancashire. And, and he didn't introduce himself at all. He just said, the first thing he said to me was, you know you used to live here, don't you? And I thought, yes, Paul Abbott, the acclaimed screenwriter of Enemy of the, Enemy of the State and uh, creator of the TV show Shameless. And he just ignored that, and he went, uh, Frank Thornton, or, or some name, that, oh, that's actually Captain Peacock, I thought he'd be so, but something like that, right? Frank Rostron, that was it. And he said, you knew who he was, don't you? <laughs> and I thought, no, I don't. He didn't give me a chance. He went, he was the principal trombonist in the Northern Dance Orchestra. And they used to play a daily concert from the Dance House Theatre in Manchester. And the leader of the Northern Dance Orchestra, and literally millions and millions of Brits would tune in every single day. I mean, a ridiculous, like 15 million people would listen to this every day. And he said, and you know who the leader of that band was? Chester Harriet. And I said, and he said, I said, oh, Ainsley's dad. He said, yeah. And he had a white chauffeur and a white uh, cook, and he was a black man. And he grabbed <laughs> grabbed hold of my arm when he, he wasn't a racist. He was just saying, can you believe that this guy back then? So I looked at a picture of Chester Harriet, Ainsley Harriet's dad, and he was standing next to an incredible car, I think a Rolls Royce, wearing a floor uh, floor length fur coat and a crazy hat, smoking a cigar. And I thought, <laughs> there's a cool dude. There's a cool dude. I can't even remember where I was going with that. I think I think the point... Well, I'll tell you, I, the conclusion of that anecdote is this. Somebody else once said to me, the definition... I think it was Noel Coward, said to me, uh, the definition of a gentleman is a man who can play the trombone but chooses not to. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> so that would be the same as trying to do 100 miles an hour in an Elvis. It's vulgar. Absolutely. So what do you do in an Elvis? Well, you could do quite a lot because there's quite a lot of space. But um, it, it, I'm, I'm very popular uh, with with friends whose daughters are getting married, um, and I use it, I use it for sporting bears because. Um, you should explain what sporting bears is, Dom. Uh, well, sporting bears is a charity that uh, owners of cars join, and people give donations at various events all over the country, and 100% of what they give goes to predominantly local charities. Um, the great thing about the Alvis, being the colour it is and all of that stuff, is I get to drive an awful lot of ladies about, because oh. um, they're not terribly bothered it's an Alvis, but it's it's a lovely colour. It is a l gorgeous... What is that? It's kind of a... It's almost... Uh, it pains me to say this. It's almost Manchester City blue. It is... It's, it's called Alice Blue because it's the colour of Alice's dress on the original Alice in Wonderland book cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's possibly the most middle-class thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> there you go. Good luck. There you go. But the great thing was, especially when I was, up, I was up at Carfest North with it, was that certainly after lunch, there were a number of ladies who had been and had the glitter done on the cheeks in the morning and then had found the Prosecco bus um, ah. who were piling into the back of it and then doing Thelma and Louise in the back seat all the way around. I've got a theory about events. Carfest North, a great event, was it? Was that the one at Alton Park or what, did it move to Chumley Castle? It 
was, and then it did, and now it is no more. Yeah, well, I think I know why, because I think events like that, which are kind of historic car shows with a bit of racing, they're all all trying to copy Goodwood, and I think that things like that only really happen within the orbit of London, and there's a reason for that, because that's where the money is. I would agree, and now now they have combined north and south to south, um, which obviously is a great plan, but it is... I love Carfest because it's all nice and clean and all that stuff, and I've worked for Glastonbury in the past, and, <laughs> and it is about the most middle-class festival on the planet, um, where you can buy your bison burgers and your buffalo ice cream and all that kind of stuff. Well, the two biggest music festivals, I, I always say to people, you want to understand the differing makeup of, of Britain. And as, as a proud Mancunian, you know, I, I'm not somebody who's blind to the, the, the true nature of this part of the world and this city and the reason it was established. You know, it's not a little London. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and they were, they were talking about um, private aviation and a company that had made a, a big mistake in coming up to Manchester and the words little London had been used and I thought it's a completely different city. Uh, it's a football city, it's a working city, it's a blue-collar city. And if you try doing anything that's sort of, you know, red trousers, if, if, if that's the sort of show... I'm wearing red trousers! I'm saying that and I'm wearing red trousers! <laughs> You're but, talking uh, about faded plum-coloured cords, aren't you? Yeah, and people talking about cars that most people have never heard of, like Armstrong Sidleys and, and Standard Triumphs and, and, and that sort of thing. If you try that outside of the home counties, you're screwed. And, you, and you, you, because it's it's just not there. It's just not there. The market, like I said, the two big, biggest music festivals in the northwest, Park Life and Creamfields, which is basically a lot of working class kids in a in in a sort of re- fenced off area, getting completely wasted to dance music. That's yeah. you know, and those are the two biggest festivals. There's there's not a festival like the one that um, the guy from Blur runs next door to Jeremy Clarkson. I think was it called Cheese Fest or something like that? Alex James. <laughs> Cheese, yeah. Cheese yeah. Fest or something, <laughs> something like that. And David Cameron goes along and they all stand around in red trousers. That's it. And, and admire the coach work on a... I'm trying to think of something even posher and more obscure than an Armstrong Siddeley bombs, but I'm, I'm struggling. It's Go- Bugatti territory round there. Yeah, yeah, Brit- yeah, yeah. To me, it's what it's what makes Britain interesting. It's there's the most. I think Italy might might um, rival Britain for this, but I do think Britain's the most different country in the shortest distance. You can go a hundred miles, and it's a completely different nation. You know, well, it, it is if you leave here because if you go hundred miles, you'd be in Scotland or Wales, so <laughs> you would be in a completely different different nation. Shall we talk about your MG Magnet? Yeah, go on then. My first sighting of an MG Magnet was on its roof on the um, in the booklet that they gave away with the Who album, Quadrophenia. Did you? Are you aware of that? I wasn't aware of that. I was aware that an awful lot of the, awful lot of them got used for banger writing because they were so strong and, and and quick. I should imagine compared to the compared to the competition in banger racing. I was going to say we're back to relativity again, aren't we? It, <laughs> it's the. I mean, it was the. I can't remember uh, the complete 
marketing thing, but it was the it was the fastest four door, one point five saloon in the world at the time. But they did narrow down the criteria quite a lot. Well, the thing, one of the, what years your stop? Fifty seven. So it's a B rather than an A, yeah. Yes. yes. I, I think magnets had. Um, Disc brakes as an option and radial tyres as an option really early on, didn't they? They didn't. They didn't do disc. They didn't do disc brakes. But a lot of people, including me, because the mechanicals were very similar, um, very quickly put the discs off the MGA, which more or less went straight on. Hold on, Dom. Is that what we call resto modding? Was it at the time? Hold on. You might. You might. Be, yours might be an outlaw magnet. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's been described as many things, um, but the 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 purists the purists almost clutch their chest and fall to their knees. Do you um, know what it reminds me of a bit later on? The BMW O2 series. I think BMW looked at the MG Magnet and thought, "Yeah, a saloon that's a sports car, great idea." Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And they were. I mean, they were. I've had. Really mixed comments on it, as in people saying, oh, I had one of those and they were fantastic. And I had one little old lady walk up to me and go, oh, my aunt had one of those. And I said, that's lovely. And she said, but she was killed in it. <laughs> I've got to get away from the mic when I laugh like that. I, I, I did something last week and people said, oh, when you started laughing, I went, yeah, but that was the guy who told me that he had a Volkswagen Beetle that he'd hopped up from 45 to 450 brake horsepower. <laughs> I laughed. She was killed in it. Yeah. <laughs> is yours too, Tom? It isn't. It actually oh, came... come on, Dom. You let the side down. It actually came out the factory. Obviously, the chap was a bank manager or something, and he had the option of having two-tone, and he had it black. Bench seats or individual seats? Individual seats. Leather or cloth? Leather. Leather. Yeah. Absolutely leather and 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 the, a synchromesh gearbox and four speeds. Wow. Well, it it one of the safety features, and I have the poster in the downstairs toilet because that's the only place I'm allowed to put stuff like that. Um, is one of the safety features was that it had a deep dish steering wheel. Um, it didn't have seat belts as standard, but it did mean that you didn't hit the steering wheel with your head quite as fast as you would have done <laughs> if it didn't have a deep dish steering wheel. <laughs> My grandfather um, was uh, a policeman, amongst other things. The chap we've talked about, the guy, the guy who played for Berry and had the boxing uh, matches. He was he was doing that thing. He was a sporting gentleman because my great grandfather was kind of a mill owner type chap, like a Bradley Hardacre, if you remember him. <laughs> I do, Timothy West. There's a fantastic picture of my great grandfather on Berry Railway Station because each year he would charter a train to take the working, the ragged children of, of Berry Lancashire to the to Southport, to the seaside. And in the picture, there's my grandfather stood there with his whiskers and his, his three-piece suit and his thumbs in his uh, waistcoat pockets. And all these ragged children in, in cut-down adult clothes, like man's trousers, sort of with the ends... Some of them barefoot. And my grandfather, in a sailor suit... Looking like Mr. Burns as a boy off uh, off the Simpsons, <laughs> crazy photograph. 
But, um, yeah, so my grandfather, he's, like I say, a sporting gentleman. He liked his Rileys, he liked his Jags. And I'm going to tell you what else he had in a minute. I think you're going to be impressed. But, like I say, so he did a bit of fencing, he did a bit of motorbike, uh, light motorbikes, Rudge motorcycles, which, of course, the original Scuderia Ferrari was Rudge motorcycles. The first team that Enzo ran was bikes, and it was British bikes. Okay. People forget that. Uh, Not me. Uh, or people who listen to the show, because I must have said it at least half a dozen times. But um, his third fight, his third pro fight was against an American. He said, a black American from New York. He said, he knocked me down in the third round. He said, and I, I was lying there. And the fight was at the drill hall in Berry. And he said, and the crowd was screaming at me to get up. And I thought, I'll just have a rest here. We're playing Blackburn next week. They're really good. He was, <laughs> he was fighting during the football season. <laughs> Just like a black blackbird are a really good side. I'll just, play them. I'll just have a rest here. But football was a bit different then, wasn't it? <laughs> well, when he used to take us, yeah, he was he was both because my other grandfather, my other grandfather John, they were both John. Um, well, incidentally, well, well, one was Jack. Why is Jack a diminutive for John? It's got the same number of letters in it. Doesn't make sense, does it? See, you're Dominic, you're Dom. I'm Stephen. I'm Steve. John Jack. Four letters in both. It doesn't work. Think again. Anyway. <laughs> right. So um, what was I talking about there? Oh, my, my grandfather and... Uh, I've, lost, I've lost my thread, Dom. We were talking about your MG Magnet. <laughs> you, were, you were talking about him having a rest, lying down because he was playing football. That's, that's... Well, he, yeah, he thought modern football... Uh, and this is this is a good sort of thirty years ago when I used to go to football with him. He had no time for it. As he, he, the lack of the lack of physical injury and, and brutal contact. <laughs> was, you know, he, was, he, he was disgusted, and he thought that the, that the so-called boots—they're not boots. That's not a ball. He'd say it's a balloon. Your balloon. I remember him saying that. That's not a ball. It's a balloon. And of course, back in the day when we probably started playing football uh, at school, the leather ball, when it was raining, used to weigh about as much as, uh, as a Vespa, didn't it, when you tried to head it? It's Absolutely, and your pride and joy was a caser, wasn't it? A caser? Oh, yeah, yeah, and British-made mitre caser. And yeah. it, it, it's interesting, that, isn't it, because at the moment there's a lot of talk about British manufacturing and whether we need to return to that. And it's... I'm kind of involved on the periphery. I'm not. I'm not involved. I've, well, I I own the oldest British motorcycle clothing manufacturer, Waddingtons of Yorkshire. They're in the 1841 census as fellmongers, which is the old word for leather makers. They're older than Barber. They're older than Bellstaff. They're the oldest brand. And a few years ago, I bought the brand and I started to collect items um, that they'd made over their long history. That's why I own all those flying helmets. I've got over 200 leather jackets. I've got over 400 pairs of gloves that Waddington made. And their story is that of a British manufacturer who for over 100 years made everything here in the UK and tanned their hides here, and then in the 80s made a disastrous decision, outsourced the manufacturer uh, to somewhere abroad that was a lot cheaper. The quality went down a downhill like a bloody anvil dropped down a lift shaft yep. and uh, they went bust basically because some of the stuff I've got I've got a Barry Sheen replica race suit the red white and gold Barry Sheen famous Barry Sheen um, 
racing suit, a replica one that had never been worn. I managed to acquire that. It had been made. It had never been worn. And the quality is absolutely fantastic. Handmade here in the UK. And there are companies... They used to make... My old man was on, was on Vulcan Bombers when he was in the RAF. And he had a pair of leather flying gauntlets that came, kind of came halfway up your arm. And I'm... They would have been Waddington. Yeah. They would have been. And, but they were made in two different factories. This was typical MOD. They're made on two different sites. Mm. They were slightly different colours. There was a lot of there was a lot of cross manufacture, just like there was in the in the British bike industry. Um, Waddingtons were based in Hull, and there was another famous British brand, Gold Top, almost across the road, who were, who were more famous for their boots. So there are some Waddington branded boots that I'm convinced were actually made by Gold Top, because why would Waddington gear up to making boots when there was the best known British? motorcycle boot manufacturer was literally across the road from them just popped across the road and said hey lads uh, and it's, it's the same i've talked to people in the motorcycle industry who actually worked mainly in coventry where alvis were making cars yep. for the likes of triumph or for not bsa obviously weren't in coventry but bsa norton the british bike industry as it was velocet and they've said it wasn't that uncommon for us to perhaps build a few gearboxes for that for them lot down the road if we were quiet yeah. And this is why people said to me, oh, we opened up the engine and there were some, like, rogue parts in there. And I think, hmm, were they putting at the factory? <laughs> yeah, or the fact that whoever they were getting them from was on strike, so they went and pinched them from somewhere else. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So is, is this how... My point being, the interest in British manufacturing... It, there's a company up here, well, just over the hill from us, as we say, in Yorkshire, and they're called Heb Troco, the Hebden Bridge Trouser Company, and they make clothing here in the UK, and they promote... They're great. They, they promote, they've got a real sort of dry sense of humour because they realise that compared to most stuff, their stuff looks expensive because they charge £150 for a pair of jeans. And when they promote it on social media, there are, there's no end of people queuing up to scream and shout and f and blind about why on earth a pair of jeans would cost £150. And they'll engage with these imbeciles and explain to them <laughs> that if you actually make stuff in the first world, whether that's Germany or the UK or the States or whatever, you have to pay people a living wage and you have to pay business rates and there are all kinds of expenses that they don't have in the sweatshops of the developing world where a huge number of European or American named companies w w would make their stuff. I mean, I came here today on a bicycle. I cycled across Manchester to get here and I came on a bike which has got the American... It's a, it's a Schwinn bicycle... And it's got the American flag in three different places on that bike. Yep. But if you turn it upside down, there's a sticker that says "Made in Taiwan" on the under on the underside of the crank. Uh, yep. if, you, if you look closely at those flags, it'll say "Designed in the USA." Absolutely, that's the kind of bike Pee Wee Herman rode, wasn't it? It's not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Can you see me smoking my pink pipe off one of, the, one of those Schwins that? Pee <laughs> no, it's not a beach cruiser. It's a, it's a mountain bike, Dom. It's going not. Back, yeah. 
in Manchester. Kind of going side to side through the city centre. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think I don't think uh, where I live in Manchester, people would take kindly to a man in a <laughs> with a pink bike riding Pee Wee Herman's bicycle down Deansgate. I've got a mountain bike, but you know, my, my point being, can you see? And obviously, we want to talk about you know what you do with the Association of Heritage Engineers. Can you see? in the future, in the near future, a return to an interest in British manufactured goods, particularly in the in the auto industry? I would I would like to think that that, that if 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 anything comes out of um, the issues we are going through now, it will be that people realise that we need to support British manufacturing industry in particular. And I think the whole the whole argument for sustainability and all of that stuff is you need to make less, you need to chuck less, and you need to make it better. Oh. And if you are genuinely, if you genuinely care about the environment, you don't ship it two thousand miles. No, you don't. We, we've become almost not we, not me, because you know I'm a bloke who. Uh, well, I, I somebody said to me. Uh, I pulled up in, in my Citroen. I've got an 83 Citroen CX. And some, somebody, don't ask why. And somebody, um, I pulled up outside the pub in it, and the guy said to me, oh, yeah, classic car. And I said, no, that's my daily. That's my <laughs> daily driver. I've got much older, weirder cars than that <laughs> for I fun. I will tell you what my daily driver is, then. Why not? Go on. I've got a Citroen BX-16 valve. Yay! Wow, a fella. Yeah, another idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the black the black BX that's on your uh, on your it Facebook? Is. Yeah, yeah. That's a fantastic looking car. It is a good. I think there's about ten of them left. Was it um, Marcello Gandini that designed that car? It was. <gasps> right. It yeah, was. I, I drive a French Lamborghini Miura. <laughs> no, you don't, Dom. <laughs> I remember the advert for that. The reason that I remember it is because there was uh, a TV advert here in the UK. I don't know if you remember it. You might. And it showed Gandini in his sort of fantastic apartment. And it said, this is Marcello Gandini, the man who designed, the boy wonder who designed the uh, the Lamborghini Miura, the Lamborghini... Did he, do, he did the Countach, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, Lamborghini Countach. And I think I had a hand in the Diablo. Diablo's a, a, a kind of re-jig Countach anyway. Uh, but what does he drive on the way to the office every day? And it showed him coming out of his apartment into this fabulous sort of uh, Italian square, both Citroen uh, BX, and prob- probably like yours. You, so yours is the uh, the sixteen valve, the GTI. It is, yeah, it's the it's the sixteen valve. Um, I'll get anoraki now. It's the sixteen valve phase two. So they didn't call it the sixteen valve at that point, but it was the same engine they put in the. Peugeot MI16. Ooh, nice. There was a Group BBX, wasn't there? There was. Right, was right at the very end of Group B. That's right, they got it out the door just as it shut. Was there a Ferrari? Am I, am I, am I imagining that there was a Group B Ferrari? I think, I think again, like with Citra, right at the very end of Group B, Group B, when it was way too late to be coming out with a the car, they went, there you go. <laughs> They did, they did do a few Rally 308s, didn't they? Yeah, they did, yeah. He, he, he said, uh, reassured by his guest confirming something that Absolutely. he's they now wondering whether he imagined. Because because um, one of my car history is a Renault uh, Clio Williams, because I was a great oh. fan of 
Jean Ragniotti, and I think I think he was a drove a works Ferrari three hundred eight rally car. That was the best hot hatch, the Clio Williams three. That was the best. And my pal, who um, I saw him this morning, because um, he, he, he shares an office building with me here in Man- well, he not shares it, but he's got he's got um, his oh, office. <laughs> no, he's got his office in the same building, and yeah. he he made a lot of money very very quickly in the nineties through the entertainment industry. Um, lost it all in the end, of course, but uh, <laughs> but um, he bought a Clio Williams three, and then he made even more money, and. He called me up and he said, I'm going to buy a Range Rover. And I went, don't buy a Range Rover. Because the only car he'd ever driven, because he was like a struggling artiste, um, he learnt to drive in that. He didn't, he didn't do what the rest of us have, which is have a succession of rubbish cars and then sort of work up to something decent. Yeah. Learn it, you know, trying to pass his driving test. I think he passed his driving test when he was like 26 or something like that, like a lot of musicians do. And all um, oh, they don't bother... Because isn't famously Liam Gallagher can't drive, um, but he owns a Bristol, and Charlie Watts from the Stones I don't think can drive either. No, uh, he sits in his car collection and makes the noises, doesn't he? Apparently, he likes Lagondas. And uh, a pal of mine, his girlfriend worked on their stud farm in Somerset, and isn't it a small? It's weird, isn't it? It's such a small world. Wouldn't want to paint it, though. Who said that? Was it Bill Hicks? Anyway, so... um, No, Stephen Wright, that was it. Anyway, so um, he sits in the Lagondas in the barn and listens to jazz on the radio and smokes cigars, apparently, but never never goes anywhere in them. (laughs) (laughs) So my pal got this... He got this Clio Williams 3, so that's the only car he's ever driven. So the only car you've ever driven in your life is a Clio Williams 3. And then you get a diesel Range Rover. Guess what, Dom? Didn't like it. I have to say, of all the cars, of all the cars I've 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 owned, and that includes the Tiger and numerous others, that that is the one I would happily revisit. <sighs> well, yeah, but would you? And what would you think? Oh, uh, yeah, and something which seemed super quick and agile and really sort of well screwed together. Twenty-five years on, would it yeah, be a bit of a I disappointment? I wouldn't go for the last bit. Um, but my my eldest son has a, a a Clio 182, which I have to say is a a very useful car in going from A to B. But the the great thing about cars of that era, whether it's the Clios or the little Peugeots, is they're comfortable with it. I get in the modern stuff and it knocks your teeth out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, the Citroen. You know, it's I, I my CX. I I just. From when I get in the CX, and I particularly like when I got in it last night and it's been parked up for a week, and it was lit, it had sat its ass on the floor, literally on the ground, like I was going cruising around Compton with my homies. Yeah. You know, it's like, slammed. <laughs> yeah, slammed, baby, slammed. Got in it, fired it up, turned the radio on, Radio 4. It's, I'll never change it from radio. That, that car just does Radio 4 or a cassette with, like, uh, Bridget Bardot on it or something like that. I, I knew a guy, I've got to go off a tangent one, I knew this guy once, and he ran a timber yard in Manchester, right? But what he used to do in the evenings was drive around in a white Volvo P1800, listening to the speeches of Je- John F. Kennedy. 
Okay. That's, yeah, I know. It's just, and, and that was the, the the thing. And he used to dress up. He used to dress up, not not like as like as sort of sixties clothes, like to do it. And then, but if you went to the timber yard, it was just the bloke in overalls who'd come out of the back smoking a roll-up cigarette and say, "All right, chief, what can I do you for?" You'd never think. I bet of an evening, this guy drives round in a, a Swedish sports car built in West Bromwich listening to the speeches of perhaps the 20th century's most charismatic politician. <laughs> it's quite... That would be considered quite a specialist website now, wouldn't it? <laughs> but my point being that every time I get in the CX, it's an occasion. It's not just a journey, it's an occasion. From when I've started up and it starts to lift itself off the floor, it's, it's not just a journey. And it's a pain in the ass. Some, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't start for no apparent reason. And sometimes it, sometimes it decides to dump all of its green LHM fluid on the floor. Again, for a reason that we don't know, because then it'll be fine for another 1,500, 2,000 miles, and then all of a sudden it'll decide it's going to splurge all over. It, it's a bit embarrassing as well. <laughs> you, you come back and there's this weird green puddle underneath your car. <laughs> looks like you've run over a Ninja Turtle. Well, it, it looks like your car's incontinent. <laughs> I've got an incontinent car. <laughs> Have you ever been to Coventry Motorfest? Have you ever done that one? Yeah. Well, Jay, James Noble, the guy who runs Coventry Motorfest, has a, um, a a presidential spec CX estate. Oh, how with, fabulous! With, with with leather seats you can get lost in, and more gadgets in there than you would want in a French car with French electrics. Um, and he has a similar love hate relationship with it, but it it is the most fabulous thing. I, I just. The ride is unequalled. You, 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 I, I, I traded in a very nice uh, V8 Jag, which had a fantastic ride. Very supple, but very sporty. Uh, and it was a great car. It's an XJR, and it was a, a, a later XJR with the the small pulley kit on the coal down, all that sort of thing. Be dynoed at 420 brake horsepower. But it was, it just wasn't weird enough for me. Do you know what I mean, Dom? It was it was a bit bit too conventional. <laughs> it it just, was a bit of a it was a bit of a brown pipe rather than a pink pipe, was it? It was it was a bit. You know, I'm, I had it for about a year and I enjoyed driving it. But the first speeding ticket I got, I thought, right, that's it, because I, <laughs> I, I had uh, I'd had a clean license for the first time in uh, how long? Twenty odd years. You got to remember back in the day, I. I, I once got a ban. I got two, I've been banned twice for accumulation of speeding points. I'm not proud of it, but um, it was just owning really quick vehicles. It seemed to be impossible not to accumulate speeding tickets. I mean, I need GSXR 1000, I had GSXR 1000 Suzuki, which would do 90 miles an hour in first gear. In first gear, and there were another five. How do you ride that motorcycle at the speed limit? I have no... Well, I obviously had no idea. <laughs> there, there was one year where, at Christmas, I had more points than Man United. Well, you're doing well. <laughs> oh, come on, Don. That's not a bad gag. I can't believe I got... <laughs> right, I, 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 I got in... I ended up in Coins in, in, in Stockport, not far from here. And uh, the magistrate's clerk brought up a previous uh, error by the... Uh, by the... Uh, administration at the magistrate's court in West Bromwich. West Bromwich, another mention of West Bromwich, where Jensen cars and those Volvo P1800s, the early ones were made. 
and I remember the magistrate saying out loud, saying, the incompetence of West Bromwich Magistrates Court is not my concern today, let's carry on. Because basically they forgot to add six points, they'd given me six points and forgot to add them to my licence. So as I had 20-odd at the time, I was pretty glad that I wasn't into the 30s when Stockport decided to deal with me. But there's nothing like... I tell you what, I see all this stuff and I see these younger guys going on about these cars with hundreds and hundreds of horsepower, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't own them or drive them, but I've been there. I've stood in that dock when they've given me a six-month ban. I've stood in that dock when they've then given me a 12-month ban. And I'll tell you what, if you're trying to apply your trade and earn your living as a motoring journalist... A 12-month driving ban doesn't half put a dent in your uh, in your career, and, and particularly your, in your finances. So my point being is that, that I try and look for driving experiences that aren't going to put me back in that dock, Absolutely. if you know what I'm saying, either on the circuit or in some kind of motor racing, or something that's got not much of the way of horsepower, but feels like the end of the world when it cracks 65 miles per hour. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what reaction do you get from other people other than, oh, it's that eccentric bloke again? Yeah, they think... Versus a bloke in a car that comes rumbling up and, and, and you jump out and they think something else entirely. It, it's... it's a... I'm going to say again, Dom, I'm not telling people not to own fast cars or fast motorcycles. That would be ridiculous. I've owned some of, not the fastest cars, I've driven them, but I've owned some of the fastest motorcycles that have ever been made, and I just know what happens. You can't resist. How can you resist? You sat on something that will crack 200 miles an hour, right? And all you need to do is turn, and the, the road opens up in front of you. I got, I got busted... This is many years ago. I got busted for 155 miles an hour. And, and, and the weirdest thing was, I felt a bit annoyed because I thought, well, it's not that fast. <laughs> you know, so, there'll be people listening that think, yeah, yeah, that's no biggie. But let me tell you, the authorities take a very different view. You're, you're almost talking jail time for that. In fact, people have, have got jail time for those sorts of speeds. Yeah, yeah. And that bike... That blinking bike had another 45, 50 mile an hour in it. Yeah, well, I've got, I've got a friend who is, as I said, I'm not a biker, and I apologise for that, but I have a friend whose dad has a BSA a, a gold star. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Pete, Pete had his bike uh, poster on the wall, so he has a... He has a Kawasaki turbo bike from the nine, from the mm. 80s, um, and he's also got a Triumph Daytona. And he said, you know, each of those bikes was considered to be quick in its day. Yeah. And he said, you do 60 miles an hour on the Gold Star, um, and you have to stop off and have a little wee when you're of a certain age. He said, the turbo um, just scares the absolute bejesus out of you. And he said, the Daytona is very, very capable, but can do nearly 200 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Dom, will you come back on to talk about your MGA restoration, which people can follow on YouTube? And they can indeed, and yes, they can, and and anything else that we, we, we happen to be building at the time. Well, yes. we, d we didn't get round to talking about the Association of Heritage Engineers, which is a terrible omission so you must come on and talk about both of those in the future no problem at all give me a shout when you're ready that's it for this episode of speed shop 
If you've got friends who are mourning about being bored, direct them towards Speed Shop. It's a lot of fun. See you next time.